This teaching comes to you from the team at St Mark's Darling Point, Sydney. We hope that it blesses you. Charles is going to read our first reading for us. Uh, good morning. Uh, I'm reading from the Proverbs 28, 22 to 28. The miser is in a hurry to get rich and does not know that loss is sure to come. Whoever rebukes a person will afterward find more, flavor, more favor than one who flatters with the tongue. Anyone who robs father or mother and says that is no crime is partner to a thug. The greedy person stirs up strife, but whoever trusts in the Lord will be enriched. Those who trust in their own wits are fools, but those who walk in wisdom come through safely. Whoever gives to the poor will lack nothing, but one who turns a blind eye will get many a curse. When the wicked prevail, people go into hiding, but when they perish, the righteousness increase. Hear the word of the Lord. second reading today comes from Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 30. Then someone came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honour your mother and father. Also, you shall love your neighbour as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astounded and said, Then who can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but for God all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, Look, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man is seated on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses 
or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last will be first. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's stand together and affirm the faith that we hold with Christians down the ages. In the words of the Creed. Together. Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things are on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. Amen. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your holy word. May it be a lantern to our feet, a light to our paths, and strength to our lives. In the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please do be seated, and I hope you've got uh, accessible the uh, sermon outline that you would have got on your way in the door. And today we begin a three-week end of financial year series on one of Jesus' favourite topics, the love of money. And we begin by asking, why is it so hard, according to Jesus, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven? We just heard the story. A young man came to Jesus once with this burning question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life, to have eternal life? Now, it's interesting that he's looking for just one, one good deed, that single one that will make a difference. You can't help thinking that there's something not quite straight about this question. Someone once visited the, uh, the mid-20th century comedian W.C. Fields in hospital. Now, W.C. Fields was a notorious, uh, a notorious person in many ways, uh, not likely to be a religious man in any sense, and uh, they were surprised to see W.C. reading the Bible in his hospital bed. And uh, so the friend asked him what he was doing, and Fields said, I'm looking for loopholes feels like this guy is looking for a loophole. He wants to feel good about himself. And you can tell that by the way Jesus responds to him too. First of all, he says, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. That is, only God is good. Which means that if a human person asks for a checklist of good deeds, as if they can fill in the forms and tick off those good deeds and be done with, then they are, they are deluded and misguided. Because that's not how the commandments of God work. It's not how they've ever worked. And then Jesus says, well, you know what to do. Keep the commandments. Which, by the way, as a Jewish young man, this young man would have known. To which he says, though, well, which ones? 
Can you perhaps focus in on the highlights, perhaps, Jesus, because I'm a busy man. There's some commandments in the Bible about mildew and shellfish. I mean, you can't mean those, surely. And Jesus helpfully gives him a list, doesn't he? Murder, adultery, theft, false witness, honouring your father and mother. And he adds to that, they're all from the Ten Commandments, and he adds to that, loving your neighbour as yourself. It's a bit of a, bit of a pop quiz. Uh, which of the Ten Commandments has uh, Jesus left out here? Well, he's left out the first four, in fact, uh, which is interesting because they're the ones that are all about God. He's left out having God only, not worshipping idols, keeping the Sabbath day holy, and not taking the Lord's, Lord God's name in vain. He's left out another one too. No, no one who is at the 8 a.m. service is allowed to cheat, Alicia. He's left out the last one. What's the last one? It's crucial to this passage. Someone? Covetousness. That's right. Interesting that Jesus has left that one off. Covetousness. Envy. It's not there. So it's intriguing to notice that what he's left off here. And we'll come back to that because that's important. Because now, the, at this point, the young man, I think, is feeling a bit relieved. He thinks he can check this list off and go home and go about his, his business. He says, I've kept all these. What do I still lack? And I think he might have been expecting Jesus to say, nothing, you're fine. What a good person you are. Even I'm impressed. But that's not what he gets, is it? Jesus has got one more thing for him. If you wish to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now we come to the crunch point. The challenge Jesus gives completely overthrows this bloke. He was expecting another pat on the head and instead he got a punch in the guts. And it exposes his heart. For, we read, he cannot do it. What does he do? He goes away grieving, grieving, because, we read, he had many possessions. But what's going on here? Is Jesus just adding another command to the list of commandments? Is he saying that everyone should sell what they have and give to the poor and follow him? A clue is given to us in the fact that Jesus leaves out those crucial commandments from his list back in verse 18. He doesn't mention those first four commandments about worshipping God alone and not having idols. He mentions love of neighbour, but he doesn't mention love of God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. And he leaves off that other commandment about our hearts, the commandment about covetousness. And that's because this last challenge to the rich man reveals what his problem really is. It's not that he's rich. It's that he's in the grip of greed. His love of money is so deep that there isn't room in his heart for the love of the true God. And as he walks away sad from Jesus back to his mansion, he walks away from eternal life. And that's where Jesus turns to his disciples and sums it up. It will be hard, he says, for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It will be easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now let's be clear about camels and eyes of needles. One is very big. And one is very small. Look, I brought a needle in to show you. There you go. Um, but I couldn't find a parking spot for my camel. 
So why is it so hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom? Well, it's not because riches are bad or because money is evil. That's never the Bible's view. What we have, such riches as we own, are a blessing from God, as are all the material things that we enjoy. And there's nothing inherently more spiritual about poverty either. Being poor is a curse. But the Bible describes the love of money, greed, as an alternative form of worship, another God. Money and riches grip our hearts in such a way that there is no space for the true God. In Colossians chapter 3 and Ephesians chapter 3, Paul puts it as plain as day. He says, greed is idolatry. A greedy person is idolatrous, is worshipping a false god. Jesus makes the choice between God and money very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, no one can serve two masters, two lords. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The reformer John Calvin in the 16th century put it this way, the greedy person sets all his heart and mind on material things and forgets God. Back in the 4th century, Basil the Great, a great preacher and teacher from the area we now call Turkey, said, The more you love money, the more securely you close the kingdom of God. Love of money is spiritually deadly. It's an alternative religion, a different faith. And what's more, it's far more likely an idol for us to worship than any Of the others. We rational Westerners, we perhaps ridicule those who bow down before statues, and yet we too are prone to worship material things. Martin Luther called money the most common idol upon the earth. So, why is the love of money so powerful? Why does it grip us so? Well, the love of money is powerful because we're in denial about it. Because we're anxious and because it's addictive. We're in denial about it, you and I. Nobody here thinks that they're greedy. I think that's a safe bet that I can make. Nobody thinks they're greedy. When we think about greed, I mean, who comes into your mind? Well, there's always somebody else. Or you think about uh, international corporations or governments. Or we think about Dickens's Scrooge. Or about his namesake, if you're old enough, Disney's character, the monocled and top-hatted Scrooge McDuck. Do you remember him? Who used to swim in his money barn in oceans of cash. And that's what we think of. And these caricatures help us to be blind to how normalised and respectable greed is among us. We've normalised deficiency, as one writer has put it. We become used to focusing on what we do not have. We're surrounded by images and music that tells us that we are incomplete. Our whole economic system soaks us in this. It's sending us this message for the other 143 hours a week that you're not in church. How many hours in a, in a week? 168. Well, the other hours that you're not in church, right? Your body is not good enough. You do not have enough. You don't know enough. 
Your social networks are not enough. Your financial security is not enough. Your superannuation is not enough. Your salary is not enough. Your bank of experiences is not enough. And because we've normalised deficiency, we cannot see, you and I, when we want more than we need and that what we want is excessive, when what we already have is often far in excess of what we need. We're blind to it. We kid ourselves. But we're also anxious and we won't admit it. As Jesus teaches, we worry deeply about ourselves, what we will eat, what we will drink, what will happen to us tomorrow. And because of that, we cling to our possessions as a substitute for certainty about the future. Our possessions are our castles built against our worry about the future. They act like safety blankets for grown-ups. And this explains why we are driven not just to consume things, nothing wrong with consuming things, but we are driven to accumulate them. Have a look in your cupboard. Just now open mentally your cupboard door. How many shirts are there? How many shoes are there? On your shelves, and this gets me, how many books? On your walls, how many works of art? How many cars? How many houses? Our hoarding of these things is surely a sign of a pathology of the soul, a deep insecurity about existence itself. And purchasing more things acts like a kind of material Prozac. It soothes us with a lullaby that tells us that our love of our things is reciprocated, that these things we buy love us back as we love them. And you know it's addictive. Boy, is it addictive. As a god, money promises us the world, security and satisfaction, and yet it delivers none of these things. Like meth and cigarettes, it leaves us with an itch that it kills us to scratch, and yet that we can't stop scratching. Think about how it works, the pattern of consuming and accumulating things. We see something that a friend has, or we see an ad. We imagine the happiness that our purchase will bring. We look at our own incompleteness without this thing. We imagine how secure we will be, how impressed others will be, how we'll delight in the thing. We make the purchase. We perhaps pour through the catalogue or spend some time online looking at all the right websites and then we go ahead and make the purchase and we get the item and for a moment or two there's that afterglow. You know that moment when we get whatever it is out of its box we, or it comes, that new shiny thing, that toy, we play with it, we do whatever it is we're supposed to do, we wear it and then after a while the feeling dims and the cycle starts again. What will the next thing be? I mean, none of us should be at Westfield uh, today. But I've been there when I thought I felt a little down for some reason. You know that moment when you feel just a little bit sorry for yourself and I thought, you know what will fix this? Buying something. And I'm not even sure what it is that I want to buy. Love of money has a powerful grip on us. But like all false gods, like all addictive drugs, it's bad, not just for being false, but for what it does to us. And what does greed do to us? 
Well, it's not pretty. First of all, it twists our sense of what is good. It turns, overturns what we think is right and wrong, our sense of right and wrong. It warps our consciences. The Bible tells us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And how this root produces such an evil crop is by telling us that what we want is good, that just by the fact that we want it, and that by not getting what we want, an evil has been committed. In fact, that not having what we want is bad. Shakespeare wrote of the effect that love of gold has, saying that love of gold will make black white, foul fair, wrong right, base noble, old young, coward valiant. Greed also makes us do things we wouldn't otherwise do. As the older trader says to Charlie Sheen's character, Bud, in the film Wall Street, I've never forgotten these words, the main thing about, the main thing about money, Bud, is that it makes you do things you don't want to do. A lesson that he learns in the rest of the film. Going back to Shakespeare, he also observed that to have what we would have, we speak not what we mean. A love of money makes us false, makes us strangers to the truth. I personally know people in prison because they failed to spot what greed was doing in them. And uh, particularly in the case of one person, I'm not even convinced now that he's seen what greed is doing in him. I've seen families destroyed over greed. I've seen people justify to themselves, we do this, don't we? Justify cruelty to others, treating others' cruelty because of our love of money. It warps our sense of what is right and wrong and it makes us believe that we are what we own. It has this strange effect on us that it warps our identity. We, we think we can be ourselves through our accumulation, through the things we own, through our possessions. The late Rene Rivkin once said, if I lost my wealth tomorrow, I would feel suicidal. There is no question of that because I would lose most of what is me. Now, Rene Rivkin was crass, but he was honest and he was sadly true to his word. Money promises us ourselves the ultimate freedom to create ourselves, to express ourselves, and to be ourselves through our choices. The more money we have, the more beautiful selves we can become. The more we can find therapy for our pain by trekking in Tibet, or by swimming with dolphins, or by drinking Isogenics protein shakes. And the chilling thing about this is that it shows that not that we possess, but that we are possessed. We are owned by what we own. The line between me and mine has been erased. So what can loosen the grip of greed? What can we do then about the love of money? Is it a simply a matter of choosing not to love it, of developing a greater willpower in some way? But that's treating not being greedy is another command we have to keep. And keeping commands wasn't the rich young man's problem. His problem was that he was captivated by the wrong God, a God that could not save him from himself. 
But remember, Jesus said, only God is good. And that tells us something profound. Only God is good. And so the way out of the maze is not keeping more commandments, but resting in the goodness of God. Knowing better and with greater clarity the generosity and kindness of God, the one who made us and gave us every good thing. With God, even the rich person may be saved, for all things are possible for him. With God, even the dead person may live again. So saving us with our greed is easy. When you have a God who protects you, who is your safe stronghold, whose faithfulness is ever sure, then you need not be anxious. When you have a God who is generous beyond measure, then you need not be stingy. When you have a God whose love is measured out in the blood of his Son, then you have an identity given to you that is not the measure of your possessions or the things you own. And knowing this can break the hold of money over us. But it's an ongoing wrestle. It's a day-by-day wrestle. We are so immersed in the idolatry all around us. We're never far from falling falling for it once more. There's this whole industry called the advertising industry that's there to try and get us to feel that deficiency and to normalize it, to forget ourselves. It's there to tell us that without these things we are nothing. And so you and I, we need to tend to our own souls, to watch them like shepherds watch sheep. Jesus told his disciples to watch. He told them several times, watch Watch the world around you. Watch, look for my return and watch yourselves. Just watch yourselves. And so you and I need to cultivate habits that will help us to remember instinctively how hollow the worship of money is. Here are three of those habits that can provide a powerful vaccine against greed. A a Pfizer, certainly better than an AstraZeneca, the Pfizer against greed. First of all, be self-aware around money and possessions. Watch yourself around money and possessions. That is, reflect inwardly on your attach- the attachment of your heart to your things. It's not wrong to have things, but watch yourself around them. Take an inventory of your things. Perhaps look in that cupboard. <laughs> look on those shelves and ask yourself, what would it destroy me to lose What is the treasure of my heart? Look at your things and ask, why do I have so much? One of the lessons of wisdom that we've been hearing the last few weeks is to be wise, is to be open to correction because we know that our hearts deceive us. So knowing that, watch yourself. Tend to your heart. Inquire as to your attachment to things. And secondly, Practice thanksgiving. Daily thank God for his generosity to you. And practice thinking of your things, not as the things that are rightfully yours that you deserve, but as the things that you are blessed to be given. Now that's a total mind shift, isn't it, for us? Because we so, we so deeply believe, I believe it, that what I have is what I deserve. 
It's only what is rightfully mine. It's what the universe ought to give me. And yet, no. What I have, I have by the grace of God, through his sheer generosity as a blessing. And by practicing thanksgiving, I habituate myself to think, to think of myself as blessed. No matter, no matter how much or what I have. And thirdly, practice generosity. Practice regular and significant generosity to the poor and to the needy. You get better at it with practice, it turns out. They are our opportunity to relieve ourselves of the burden of the money, of money, of the money and the things we do not need and to become spiritually healthy. Now, Australians like to think of ourselves as generous and uh, compared to some countries in the world, we certainly are. But according to the Australian Tax Office, Australians give away an average of 0.42% of our taxable incomes each year. What do you think about that? doesn't sound like a lot, does it? And in the end, if you practice these things, the benefit will be to you. You will be the winner, the beneficiary. The love of money, as Paul says, is the root of all evil. It produces a terrible fruit in us. But if we're able to detach ourselves from the love of money, we gain greatly. Blessing will be ours. As Paul says to Timothy in our theme verse for this series, our grown-ups memory verse or our all-church memory verse, godliness with contentment is great gain. God, this is what the rich young man needed to know. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Amen. Thanks for listening. Please visit our website at www.stmarksdp.org to subscribe to our new episodes, browse more resources and find more information about the community of St Mark's.